Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Jacob Butler from the Physics Outreach Office. And I'm Simone Sagre-Barfer, a PhD student here studying experimental physics. Joining us this month is Dr. Sandro Takela, Assistant Professor in Extragalactic Astrophysics here at the Cavendish at the nearby Cavalier Institute for Cosmology. Inspired by astronomy at a young age, Sandro pursued a degree in physics and threaded the line between a small scale of planetary astrophysics and the statistical world of pure cosmology. He looks at the physics underpinning the formation of galaxies and black holes, hoping to understand how these cosmic structures came to be using the data from some of the most advanced telescopes on and above Earth. His experience of using analytical and cosmological models to determine the physical properties of galaxies is being brought to bear on data from the recently activated James Webb Space Telescope's NIRC-CAM instrument, and he plays a key role in projects aimed at characterising the earliest galaxies. His research is taken around the world, from Switzerland to Korea and the US, but he's still found time to start a family and maintain a healthy work-life balance. Today, we'll talk to him about the benefits and unique problems he faces working in astrophysics, what it has been like to do cutting-edge research on three continents, and where he sees extragalactic astrophysics going in the near future. Stay with us. Well, thank you for joining us, Sandra. Hello, yeah, thank you for having me. So to set the scene, it would be great to hear about your inspiration to pursue physics. And as I understand it, your interest in astrophysics started at primary school, um, at the stage most kids are deciding whether they want to be an astronaut, a superhero, what you want to do with your life. And what was that drew you to, to space in particular and the night sky, so to speak? Yeah, I, I got interested into physics mostly because of astronomy and astrophysics. And as you said, it started in, in primary school and there is not a specific event. Maybe mm-hmm. it was just that, you know, the teacher in school once asked, you know, you can present something, anything you want. And at that time I was like, oh, why not talking about black holes? Because I kind of heard <laughs> about this in TV probably. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to give a short presentation on black holes and I haven't understood anything myself really about this. <laughs> so I thought like, oh, this is actually very interesting. And so this was kind of how the whole um, space enterprise started for me. And I got the hands on, I was lucky I got the hands onto a telescope and I was starting to observe the night sky myself. And at the beginning, you know, the first two, three years, I barely was able to really basically, you know, operate the telescope myself. I had no clue where I should look at stuff. And it took me, it was a very small, like amateur telescope. And so I started, you know, playing around with that and started to think of like, oh, what, what is, what is the meaning of a star and the planet? And, and so that kind of, you know, started my interest, um, you know, doing astronomy as a hobby. Um, I grew up in the countryside of Switzerland and my parents both um, are working in travel agencies. So at that time I was thinking of like, yeah, I do an apprenticeship in travel agency business because, you know, I love to travel, um, to explore the world and had always hobby astronomy on the side. But then later in school, um, my teacher told me basically, hey, look, you can try to go to high school and, and you know, follow your dream and, and try to, you know, get into astronomy, astrophysics. And, and so at the same time, I got engaged into a, like a public outreach observatory um, close to my hometown, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and your hometown in In Zurich. Switzerland, yeah, close to Zurich, in the mm-hmm. countryside of, of, of Zurich. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's where basically I, I started this passion and this dream. Mm-hmm. And what kind of things were you getting to do at the, the observatory? Did that kind of 
accelerate your your progress, so to speak, with the, with the observations. Yes, I mean at that. That is really, um, it's, it's, it's a public observatory. So the main purpose of that um, is to basically educate the public. So we had a lot of um, school classes that came to visit or even, you know, some other clubs that were interested, you know, mm -hmm. to do kind of an event in the evening. And so what I was doing there at the beginning was mostly outreach events. So I, you know, showed like tour of the night skies um, gave small presentations. Um, and then I also basically was part of the, the, the executive committee of, of that observatory and the president of that observatory for several years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then at the same time, I, I started to, you know, to basically study physics at the mm -hmm. university. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of in, in parallel as a, as a hobby. Yeah. So you mentioned you did your undergraduate degree in physics at uh, ETH Zurich before specialising astrophysics in your master's. So did you find that taking a sort of undergraduate course that was in general physics rather than one focused on astrophysics affected the path you later took or uh, you know, adjusted your sort of expectations of what you'd specialise in? Yes, so I would have, of course, loved to directly dive into astronomy and, and astrophysics, <laughs> uh, but Switzerland actually has not a very big history of, of astronomy. This is because... Switzerland is a landlocked country and so we don't have like this sailing history where you know we went to the seas and had to use you know the stars <laughs> to navigate um, because of that um, our research in Switzerland mostly focuses on applied research and, and there is of course a history of, of, of quantum physics at ETH Zurich um, and so as astrophysics basically there is one course in the undergrad that is is really astrophysics and the rest is all physics but I knew that if I want to do astrophysics on the long term I need to, to basically get a, a physics degree and and that's what basically what I did. Um, I mostly had general physics and math classes, which in retrospect was the right way, you know, to, to follow <laughs> this career path. But mm. but at that time, you know, I enjoyed those classes. I, I really enjoy physics and, and mathematics. But um, my dream was always to do astronomy and astrophysics. Mm. And uh, so astrophysics is quite a broad area. I mean, what what drew you to sort of extragalactic physics? What, was there anything in particular that, uh, that inspired you to onto that path? Or is it... Uh... Yeah, so I... It, it was based on also some coincidences, but overall I was interested um, in kind of the understanding the large scale structure of the universe, um, which kind of relates to cosmology. But at the same time, I, I really liked observing, right? And what we observe nearby are really just the stars, the planets, and, and maybe a few nearby galaxies. And so I, I kind of thought that galaxies are kind of in between these scales and connects basically a large scale um, structure. A lot of the cosmological probes actually are related to understanding distribution of galaxies in the space. Um, but at the same time, galaxies harbor all the stars and all the planets. So I thought that this is, um, you know, something that is very of, of a big interest to me. And then there was a very strong extragalactic group at, at ETH Zurich. Um, and so I was able to, to basically join that group and, and mm -hmm. to do a, a PhD in, in that specific group. So, you know, it was basically my, my interest, but at the same time, the availability to do um, a mm -hmm. PhD at, at ETH Zurich. And so when you decided to you know take your master's before going on to do the PhD, I mean, was... Did you have it clear in your mind that a PhD was the path that you were going to take? I guess, I mean, you knew that you wanted to do astrophysics, but I guess that was kind of the only route to astrophysics where you were. Yes. Um, well, at that time, most of my friends, actually, they, they went into, you know, what we call like industry. They, 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 they did a bachelor and a master's and then they, they moved on. One of them um, came actually, actually two of them came actually back and do the PhD later on. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I, I already knew that if I... If I want to stay um, in research, I want to do extragalactic um, astrophysics. And mm -hmm. I was able to actually spend half a year of my master's degree at the University of um, Toronto in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so that, that also was a very good experience because there astronomy was a very big thing. So I was able to take a lot of astronomy classes in, right. in my first year of, of my master's degree and also had a very good interaction with, with the people there. So I that kind of 
gave me the idea of actually doing a, a PhD and then later on my master thesis and kind of had the support from, from ETH um, to, to actually do this abroad, partially at the University of Colorado um, in Boulder and at the uh, University of Cambridge here, actually. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, the, um, that was the motivation, yeah. And could you tell us a bit about the, the research that you did during your PhD? Yes. So at that time, when I started my PhD, we just got um, new images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I got uh, really into understanding um, how do actually galaxies in the early universe grow. Um, so we are getting these images from the Hubble Space Telescope that gives us kind of an exquisite resolution. So we can spatially resolve the galaxies that are about 10 billion years back in time. And so this helps us to map out basically where the young stars are, where the older stars are. And, and together with some ground-based um, um, data as well, with combining these data sets, I was able to map out basically how on which spatial scales and where in the galaxies do the young stars form and how do these galaxies grow in, in size. And so this was like my main um, research focus. I started out with a lot of observational work. I did a lot of data reduction and data analysis. And then um, once I, I published that, I was interested to understand more the theoretical reasons or the physical reasons of why do we observe this actually. Uh, because observations tell us a lot about like how things look, but then uh, at the end of, of really understanding what is the physical driver of what we observe, you need to have some kind of a theoretical model. Mm -hmm. And so then later on, my, you know, in kind of the later years of my PhD, I did um, work on numerical simulations. So these are basically computer simulations where we put in all the physics we believe are important for galaxies and let them run and then try to see what happens in those simulations because the evolution of galaxies, um, the, the baryonic physics that takes place in galaxies is very complex and multi-scale, both temporal but also spatial. And so, understanding then what's going on in itself in this theoretical model is already difficult, but then also I wanted to link this to the observational. So I kind of combined the observational side with the theoretical mm -hmm. side. Yeah. Because I mean, I've heard you describe this in the past as trying to understand kind of the evolution of galaxies, but seeing different galaxies at different points in their lifetime, but then not necessarily being able to correlate for sure, you know, is the, that galaxy that we're seeing 10 billion years before right. this one is at, like, are they going to evolve in the same way? Yes, it's exactly. So we want to understand like how, you know, why do the galaxies look as they do today? Mm -hmm. and, and the idea is that, yes, we can study objects that are further away and therefore further, you know, back in time. And, and so you would think it's actually quite easy because you would just say like, oh, yeah, we're observing these galaxies back in time. And therefore we can then kind of like, you know, build together a movie of how the galaxies evolve. Yeah. But as you just said, actually, the galaxies back in time are different galaxies that we see today in the local universe, right? We mm -hmm. cannot just look back and say like, oh, this is actually a Milky Way galaxy because the Milky Way galaxy is here. And the objects yeah. that we are observing further away, they are different objects. And so the challenge is really, I think, that, you know, how do we link these galaxy populations we observe at different times, um, you know, as a, as a, you know, in a coherent picture? And mm -hmm. the theoretical models do this very naturally, right? The, the, you let the time run and the, the, the simulation, the computer simulation evolves forward and you can see how this object evolves. But in observations, we have these snapshots. And, mm -hmm. and so I mentioned that this looks something similar to if I ask you, like, how do the, you know, how does a human being evolve and what kind of processes are important for the evolution of a human being? And I will give you basically 5,000 pictures over the last 5,000 years of random humans um, um, on random positions on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I would ask you like, okay, now what's, you know, what happened? What, what, happened? You know, what happened to an individual <laughs> yeah. human? And you will come back and tell me like, oh yeah, it depends on like actually when the human was born, right? Are we looking at an object 
you know, 10 billion years back in time, 15, uh, you know, 13 billion years back in time, where mm -hmm. the conditions were very different for star formation and, and physics in galaxies. Um, and then also you will come back and tell me, well, it depends really where the human was born, you know, was it in a different continent, which mm -hmm. continent? And again, this depends on like, where is the galaxy born in the field where there are no other galaxies, or is it born in a cluster in a very dense environment, right, mm -hmm. where there are a lot of other galaxies around it? This week, instead of the news break, we have a very exciting announcement, which is that our next episode will be recorded live as part of the Cambridge Festival. Yes, you've heard that right. You can come and enjoy not just hearing our voices, but also seeing our faces. And our special guest will be Professor Dame Athene Donald, Professor Emeritus of Experimental Physics here at the Cavendish and uh, the current Master of Churchill College, Cambridge. So we're really excited to have her on the show. Um, those of you who may are uh, local to Cambridge may have heard her speak at uh, her uh, seminar series, Give Me Inspiration, The Paradigm Shift, which is a series of conversations with distinguished professional women. Um, and so we're really excited to have her on the other side of the conversation, kind of uh, telling us about her own story and having a behind the scenes look at her illustrious career. So you really don't want to miss this. The event will be held at 3.30 p.m. in the Pippard Lecture Theatre at the Cavendish Laboratory in West Cambridge um, on the 18th of March. So that's Saturday, the 18th of March. And booking is essential, but free. So please register via Eventbrite. Um, the link will be in the description of the podcast and also on our website and our social channels. It would be great to see you there. But for those of you who can make it, obviously the episode will be released um, eventually. But it would be great to have you there for our recording as well. So please do join us for that. So uh, talk a little bit about your PhD experience. So as a PhD student in Switzerland, you had a decent salary and were actually able to have children during your postgraduate studies, which is something that struck me as remarkable you know, from my experience of uh, friends doing PhDs in Britain, where it seems to be a full-time job and then another full-time job and then probably possibly a little bit more. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that was like and what you know how it compares to your experience in other places and you know, whether whether it's sort of a particularly good model. Or, you know, yes. So yeah, here I'm always like, you know, it's always difficult to draw comparisons to other countries mm -hmm. just because. <laughs> I haven't done a PhD in other countries, right? Yeah. Um, but specifically in Switzerland, I think that, um, you know, at least uh, at ETH, um, there, the, you know, it is a full-time job, um, yeah. uh, but you get paid also a, a rather normal salary. It's not that you are, you know, you're still slightly below the, the median salary if you would go to industry, but, but it's actually a salary that, you know, from which you can live from. And in Switzerland, again, there are, you know, ways, for example, you know, when you think about like health insurance or, um, child support, you know, they are usually, you know, proportional to like, or universally proportional to what you earn. And so there is support if you earn not as much as other people. And so you can still sustain a, a, a good life. Um, and, and so indeed, I, my first child was born during my PhD. And um, I think the good part there was that I really, you know, because the PhDs are rather flexible, meaning about like work hours and so on, you can quite easily you know, go and come to work um, whenever you want. Of course, you have to do a lot of work, but but still, <laughs> you can structure the days. But you can structure the days in a way so that it's 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 most um, convenient for you and also makes you most efficient, right? Because there are days in the time where you know you can do work more efficiently and so on. So for me, I always try to make sure that I, when I work, that I work efficiently um, because I think you can quite easily gain a few tens of percent in efficiency, but it's much harder to gain a few tens of percent in work hours. Mm -hmm. And so at least my approach to that was always trying to really, you know, when I worked, I really fully tried to get stuff done and 
and and that helped me to basically make sure that I have enough time also for for family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was finding that balance something that you? I mean, was there because you said there was support in terms of like the the funding or like the opportunities there, but from your institution, was that support also kind of? Yes, I think so. I mean, overall, the institution, again, was was, was rather, you know, generous. It was not that I needed to work um, from this time to that time and so mm-hmm. on. So the, I, as long as I was, you know, making progress, um, everything was, was, was great. Um, so I had never a problem with that. Um, then, of course, I was um, in this very lucky position there, you know, that I basically was able to do my PhD to, you know, like 20 minutes from the hometown I grew up. <laughs> and that helps a lot, right? Because you have family and friends around. So you have a support network of, of friends. So if something doesn't go that well, um, you know, you have the support network around you. And so this, I think, helped um, a lot as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And speaking about having that support network, um, you also mentioned that in, ter- in the group where you were doing your PhD, that there was some... Um, controversy um, kind of with the supervisor and there's like an ongoing um, investigation and so on so without kind of delving too much into the specifics of the case what would you say were the important aspects of kind of progressing in your PhD and and being able to have quote-unquote like a successful PhD Mm -hmm. or at least going on to have all these opportunities later on um, even when maybe the support that would be ideal or the conditions for that you would want from your um, home group might not always be there yes so so indeed, I mean, the, I was actually quite informed uh, when I started my PhD about um, some issues in the research group. So the, um, at that time, I, I knew a little bit like what's going on. And I, I knew of, um, you know, I could basically already address some of these issues before I even started my, my PhD. And um, that helped me for sure to get um, through the PhD um, without huge problems. Uh, but indeed, um, I saw many people, you know, suffering and having big issues uh, with, with, particularly with my my PhD advisor, and and so the whole group dynamic was was rather tough, I would say, and mm-hmm. I would have, you know, would have loved to see a very very different overall, you know, um, group group atmosphere, I must say. But um, again, for me, because I I knew of the. Um, of the problems, um, of course, at that time I was quite naive and said, "Like, yeah, that will not happen to me, right?" <laughs> but um, overall, um, I was prepared, and I I had people who who helped me by giving me advice of of making sure that I have also external collaborators, mm-hmm. and so this helped me really a lot, I think, um, through the the years after as well, so that I had you know other people to talk with and also to push my science forward, so that I didn't fully rely on on just getting the okay or the you know being able to move forward in projects from my advisor and again for me the relation with the advisor was actually okay in the sense that you know I made progress and you know she was all happy so we kind of were able to move forward and I had a successful PhD mm-hmm. um, as, as other people as well but but for other for other people it was much much tougher but I, I think for me the helpful thing was really to have this external connection with, with other people who then supported me also um, you know through the years after after PhD because as you know, um, you need uh, the advisor or the, the PhD advisor support usually for, for many years after your PhD as well. But at least in my case, I was not um, able to get that. And that was fine also because I had this helpful network of, of other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the sooner you can get independent, the better. Mm-hmm. But I guess during that time, if you are ever struggling, then find other people to give you that support regardless, I guess. It, it is very difficult. So I think, again, I, I, I'm, I was very, you know, aware of that. So it helped me to, to reach out to other people. Mm-hmm. And also I was able to find projects and particularly steer projects in this direction so that I was able to, to collaborate with external people as well. Um, but again, this was not a solution that you know every student was able to, to get mm-hmm. um, to, um, unfortunately. 
Um, and again, for me, I, I had this uh, rather privileged position where I was saying, well, look, if the PhD doesn't work out, sure, I'll just go to industry as all my other friends <laughs> and work, you know, in a bank or, mm -hmm. you know, in Switzerland, there are a lot of other opportunities you can do with, you know, data science. And so for me, I always had this rather privileged, you know, position of saying like, yes, you know, okay, I don't do the PhD and I do something else. And so this also helped me to be rather relaxed. Mm -hmm. um, I guess maintain a sense of some boundaries. With yes, how much the boundary. And, and also the family helps a lot with mm -hmm. that because mm -hmm. and it just, it calibrates, you know, like it, it helps, <laughs> like, you know, well, actually the important part is the family and the well-being of every family member. Mm -hmm. And it puts the PhD into like, yes, sure, it's one thing that is important, but it's not my life-defining thing. Mm -hmm. And so it, I consider it as work. And the other, I was brought up in a working class family, right? I was the first person in my family going to high school. So again, the the approach in our family was always like, yeah, there is work and there is family and, and you know, the, all the rest, we do the hobbies and the fun <laughs> part, right? And the work was not always great, but we had to do it to enjoy the rest. And so for me, I knew that I loved the job. I love astronomy. I love my PhD, but it was clear that it's still a job and I should not make it my pure life. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you were able to get an independent fellowship at Harvard, but you uh, had to adapt that due to delays in the launch of the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. So wondering how it was to work on uh, large facilities where there's lots of groups and years of planning versus you know, a, a facility on Earth which is fairly stable and fairly predictable. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, when I finished my PhD, um, I was lucky I had several different job offers and I was indeed very lucky to, to go to, to Harvard with an independent fellowship. And, and so the, the fun part there is like, yes, they tell you like, you know, here is an office, here is some money and enjoy, <laughs> basically. Yeah, do something, right? And then that's great. I mean, for me, it was great because, I mean, I came out of my PhD and I had to restart my career, basically, because, you know, everything that I've done in the past kind of broke apart uh, because of the investigation into my supervisor and then later the, the firing as well. So for me, I basically had to restart. And that was a great opportunity because at Harvard, you know, people were very friendly and very collaborative. So I was able to reach out to different research groups and learn really a lot. Um, and indeed, one of the reasons why I went to Harvard was because um, people there were already involved in the James Webb Space Telescope. And, and so one reason for me was actually to, to go there to then work on this telescope. Um, and the idea was that, yes, in a few months, the telescope will launch. So I said, like, OK, great, I go there, I start working on that. Um, however, then there were two delays of the James Webb Space Telescope shortly you know, after each other, and this pushed it back by several years. So I was there like, okay, so what do I do now? <laughs> I, I tried to get some observational data from a ground-based facility. But again, even though that's on the ground and easier to maintain, you would think the I got like 10 nights in the first year and it was, this was broken, it was bad weather. So at the end I had like one night of data, so I couldn't really do that. Um, so I was like, okay, let's do some theory. So I did more of the theoretical <laughs> modeling again at the, at the beginning of my, my postdoc and again, I had the, the flexibility there to do whatever I want. So that was fun. And I had actually made a lot of connections to other postdocs um, who also kind of started at the same time there. And so it was a really fun collaborative experience there. And I made many good friends and collaborators at that time. And, and indeed, I got involved in the James Webb Space Telescope, but more on the data um, software development side, um, because again, there was a lot of work to be done there. Um, even though the hardware has been finished, developed and launched into space, ready to be launched into space, the software side is something that we can improve always on. And so mm -hmm. I've been working a lot on, on that recently. Yeah. And could you tell us a bit about your path after this, this independent fellowship? You went from Harvard to Korea. Was that yes. Right? Yes. So, um, yeah, at that time um, we had the COVID pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, you know, we had like a four-year um, fellowship at Harvard. And so after 
three years, I was like, okay, um, I should start thinking about the next step. And again, I, I had the, me the, the mentality to say like, look, I, I had to do one postdoc because I had a family mm -hmm. um, at that time, but then I had two kids. Uh, it was clear that, um, you know, I want to move into a permanent job or mm -hmm. I move back to Switzerland and work in industry basically. Mm -hmm. um, and not do another postdoc. And, and so I started applying for a few faculty jobs, but then the pandemic came and then it was kind of clear that, yes, it gets tight to get a faculty job just because a lot of the places were shutting down, um, mm -hmm. also financially, so they didn't want to hire anybody else. They had a lot of hiring freezes. And so at that time, um, it, it's not that I had like panic, but it was clear that, yes, um, I have to be a bit more open-minded about job opportunities. And so my wife is Korean, and so it was clear that we want to either live in Korea, in Switzerland, or in an English-speaking country. And so I basically applied in, in the in you know in 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 that in that year um, into all these different places. Um, but there were a few job openings, and Korea was the one that I was able to get. And it was in the hometown of my wife, so I was like, okay, great, let's let's do that um, because. There are a lot of opportunities there. It's a, it's basically still a, a growing um, community when you look at astronomy there, um, and it's the hometown of my wife. So after COVID, we wanted to have family again. So it was a was a good good time to go there. And so we moved to Korea. Mm -hmm. And then what drew you to come back back to Europe and to Cambridge in particular? Right? Yeah, so you've been there yes briefly. But yes, not. it was a, it was a year at the end, and I think. When we moved to Korea, I think the main idea was like to stay there for maybe, you know, three to five years, mm -hmm. um, just when the kids are small and being, you know, exposed to, you know, the Korean culture, but also being, you know, next to the, the grandparents was like mm -hmm. our main idea. And I thought that three, five years there would allow me to maybe go back to, to Europe um, or the US um, with another faculty job. Um, in that time, I still I still had a, a few applications submitted and they were then picked up again. And Cambridge was one of them. And... And so then that interview, you know, interview started to come back and I was like, mm. sure, I'm still interested. And we, you know, I got then a job offer from from Cambridge and we had to make the decision whether we want to stay in Korea and wait for another three, four or five years or we want to move um, to the UK and to, to Cambridge. And again, it's it's once of a lifetime job offer, basically, you can mm. get from such a place. And it was kind of then clear we want to, you know, move. Um, and again, there were different reasons, I think, on the family side, we were you know, we had good reasons to stay in Korea as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but overall, we also thought that in the long term for our kids, it would be more, you know, it would be better if they, they grew up in an English speaking environment, in a multicultural environment, because in the in the place we were living in Korea, it was rather homogeneous and they were kind of the foreigners, although they are half <laughs> Korean. Um, but here we thought that it might be a better, more fun environment for them to grow up. And on the professional side, I just have much more opportunities here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're up to at the moment? You know, what sort of interesting things are going on for you and uh, in the research you're involved in? Yes. So as you mentioned, like the James Webb Space Telescope um, launched um, a year ago um, and there has been a lot of data coming in and I've been super busy with that and, you know, building up the research group uh, in order to analyze this, this data and, and to, you know, make progress about understanding the formation of these very first galaxies is like really our, you know, main aim and primary driver. So uh, the, the key... You know, the, the key questions we try to answer at the moment are really about understanding when did the very first um, stars, galaxies and black holes form in the universe and then how did they, they basically evolve um, with cosmic time. And the James Webb Space Telescope, um, thanks to its larger mirror and its infrared capabilities, really allows us the first time now to really probe um, you know, these galaxies and, and not just find them, uh, but also actually characterize them. So meaning that we are able to not just get like a 
a simple blob of light, but be able to actually disperse the light and you know do kind of the, the measure the spectral features in in the galaxies. And this helps us to understand what are you know the chemical compositions of these galaxies, you know of the stars in them, um, you know how many stars are there forming, and and how do they they grow these galaxies. So there is um there's a lot of of research in in that re in that direction that I'm currently doing. So it's a lot on the you know, as always in these missions at the beginning, you work a lot on the data reduction and 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 meaning basically how do you go from this raw data to to process data that um, have you know physical uh, like flux units and you know physical attributes that we can work with, and then also working on the interpretation side and and again I have also people looking into the the theoretical modeling um, of these galaxies. So again, one very important aspect there that we are currently pushing forward is understanding. Um, you know, um, how to actually do proper additive transfer in those simulations. So when you have these models, right, they, they, you know, most of them have basically some kind of gas and some stars and maybe even some dark matter particles. Um, but then understanding of, okay, this is like, you know, the, the simulation quantity and how do you go to the observational quantity is actually a quite tricky thing. So you mm. need to somehow understand how does the emission of these, you know, young stars and the stars particles in the simulations interact with the surrounding gas. So you have to somehow have these photons, these light particles travel out of, of, of these simulations and, and then you have to observe them um, as the observers do. <laughs> and so because you have all this observational expertise, you know, I'm working now um, on understanding how we can translate these theoretical, you know, simulations, these theoretical corners into the observational space to do a proper Apple to Apple comparison. Mm. And so this is something that I also invest a lot of time in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It never occurred to me how difficult it would be to figure out what these idealized models would actually look like when you know passed through gas and space and it, telescopes. And exactly. Yeah. And, it's, yeah, yeah and, and it's something that, you know, we until now in galaxy evolution have been mostly interested in orders of magnitude. So doing this exact comparison was not that important because we were like, oh yeah, we orders of magnitude off. Okay. <laughs> so we have an issue. But now we are starting on factors of two. Mm -hmm. And and so that's, you know, like how you know how massive is a galaxy? You know, how many stars are there in a galaxy? You know, we, we can estimate this to about a factor of two. Um, and and we want to go below that. Um, and understanding these systematics, um, you know, really really means that you have to make these more careful comparisons. Yeah. And what has kind of brought about that shift in, you know, the types of questions that you're answering, the fact that, is it just that the hardware, the types of telescopes that you're using, the, the scale of these facilities has just massively changed over the past few decades? Or have the questions that you're asking as well changed? Just, I mean, at the end of the day, it still boils down to what is our place in the universe, I guess. But Yes, yes, indeed. Um, well, it goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You see, like, you you try to push the technology as far, you know, ahead, you know along or ahead as, as possible and then try to answer the questions you can answer now. Mm -hmm. Okay, of course, you motivate the the facilities based on the questions also, right? So there is a, is a, is a loop, basically. Um, and so, you know, many times, I think what the art of science is a little bit about is like actually asking the right questions with the facilities and data that you get now and asking maybe some more, um, you know, more interesting questions um, based on just the data you, you already have at hand. Um, so this kind of creativity, I think, is, is, is very important. But um, I think in the last few years, you know, just taking, for example, example of the James Webb Space Telescope, right, and the sensitivity gain from this telescope now when we look at you know, the spectroscopy that we can do. 
uh, is going at, you know, as from like Galileo's telescope to basically a 10 <laughs> meter class telescope. It's really, you know, many orders of magnitude in sensitivity that we gain now. And, and so this really opens up very new doors, right? Mm -hmm. And also doors not just for answering your questions, but also actually- Asking new questions. Well, right? new questions and just make new discoveries, right? Like, mm -hmm. because astrophysics has been famous to actually just figure, you know, find, find new things that we have not been expecting before, like dark matter, <laughs> dark energy, like who, you know, like we have not really expected that, right? Mm -hmm. It was not like a question we asked like, oh, is there actually any dark matter in the universe? But it's actually more like, we, do, we find some weird observations and it seems like things move faster than they should. Uh, there must be some kind of form of dark matter. Mm -hmm. And so I think we should just be open for that, right? Mm -hmm. We shouldn't think too much about the theoretical models and the questions necessary. We should just actually look at the data and, and see and try to understand, you know, like interpret what we, what we see because we gain so much sensitivity that, you know, there is, the, you know, there is a possibility for, for really new discoveries as well. Um, but then, of course, the questions have also changed, right? So when you think about like 20, 30 years ago, we had really big questions like what kind of universe do we live in? Um, is it an expanding universe? Is it a shrink universe? You know, what are kind of the cosmological constants in the universe? Um, now we are moving in galaxy evolution much more into a detailed question about like what is actually the baryonic physics that takes place in galaxies? Thinking about, you know, how does the cooling of gas in galaxies work? Um, what kind of stars are there? How do these stars explode? And how do these explosions, these supernova explosions, interact with the gas? You know, thinking about supermassive black holes, how do they form? How do they accrete? And how does this accretion disk interact, you know, this, this, um, you know, these chetzels from the black holes interact with the surrounding gas? So there are a lot of kind of more detailed questions we yeah. try to answer also. Um, and, and they make it, you know, they make it necessary to have, you know, larger facilities because we need to basically zoom in onto the details, mm -hmm. right? We have to zoom in onto, you know, in either in, in the spectral domain and to certain emission lines or on spatial scales. We want to not just, you know, have basically a simple like one light blob. We want to actually spatially resolve the galaxies, right? And so it's also like the motiva motivation for my PhD. I want to not just treat the galaxy as a point source. I want to actually understand what is the spatial extent of a galaxy? What is the morphology? What is the structure of a galaxy? Um, yeah, so that's, that's I think, the, so, you know, the questions have changed, the facilities have changed, and the things go hand in hand. That sounds like a very exciting time. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing your research and your journey in physics with us. It's been lovely to have you. Um, and yeah, thanks for joining. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it was yep, great to you. talk with you. <laughs> So thanks to Sandra Takela for this episode, which has been recorded and edited by our technician, Chris Brock. Check the show notes for the details of what's been discussed. And if you'd like to learn more about our work at the Cavendish, please go to www.phy.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. So do share it with your uh, friends or enemies on Twitter or any other social platform. And if you have a pressing question you'd like to, our physicists to answer, send us an email or contact us um, with the hashtag, hashtag peopledoingphysics. We'll be back next month. And until then, take care and hopefully see you at our live recording.